The conferences that we attended, virtually speaking, in 2020, uh, they were planned. The conferences that we're going to be attending in 2021, virtually speaking, are going to be designed. Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts, Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. Absolutely delighted to have Karen Norris join us on the podcast for this episode. Karen Norris is the conference manager at the Canadian Association of General Surgeons, or CAGS, and manages the Canadian Surgical Forum, the largest annual meeting for Canadian general surgeons. In this episode, we get her thoughts about what the future holds for conferences in a COVID and post-COVID world, including how organizations can optimize their virtual conferences and what hybrid conferences might look like. Well, we have the absolute pleasure of, of chatting with Karen Norris today on, on Cold Steel. And I, I can honestly say that we are extremely excited by what Karen has to say. And she's uh, one of the more most dynamic personalities and hardest working people uh, we know in terms of, you know, the impact on Canadian surgery. So Karen, welcome. Thank you for being with us. For those few listeners, and it's probably very few who don't know who you are already, can you tell us where you grew up and how you ended up in your current career, in particular in Ottawa? Yeah. Um, first off, thank you both for uh, extending your, your audience to me to be able to talk about one of my passions. And more importantly, uh, congratulations on the first season of Cold Steel under your belt. Um, I've heard only good things about it. So congrats to you both. Um, so, uh, to start, I guess I, w- I was born in Montreal, um, and my father moved the family, uh, to Ottawa when I was five years old, and I've been here ever since. Um, I graduated university, uh, I went to Queen's University, and I graduated with, um, a degree in political science and a degree in sociology, and, uh, right from there, I took the typical path that you would upon graduation, um, and I immediately started working. I worked at a crown corporation for seven years and I absolutely detested it. Uh, I hated the work there, I hated my life. Um, So uh, I said, I gotta make a difference. I gotta change something up. And I went back to school and I actually uh, did a degree in event management at Algonquin College here in Ottawa. And I sort of lived, I guess, the resident lifestyle for a year. And that was all all I could handle. So I don't know how you guys uh, do it for five, but, I went to school with a full course load. I worked 40 hours a week at my Crown Corporation job and studied, and it was just lather, rinse, repeat for a year. Um, So upon graduation uh, with that degree, I I actually went immediately to work in the event industry, but specifically with weddings. So I was hired by the 
top wedding planning firm in Ottawa. And uh, I saw some incredible stuff there. And I've gone on record saying this before, and I will I'll, I'll say it till my dying day. Uh, that experience was the best event experience I could have ever uh, been given. There's no margin of error with weddings. Um, there's no, hey, we'll try it differently next year. Um, there's no safety net. So um, it was fantastic uh, learning for me. And no surgeon or physician or medical conference can scare me now after um, some of the some of the brides and some of the mothers of the brides that I've worked with. Um, from there, I actually moved into the association world. So I did weddings for three years. And then before I got too jaded, I moved into the association world in 2012. And I started working at the Association of Faculties of Medicine of Canada. And I loved it. I was uh, there for three years as a conference coordinator. So I helped plan their Canadian conference on medical education, which was about 1300 delegates. And then uh, from there, I actually got a job as the conference manager at the Coaching Association of Canada. So um, I moved into sports. So I was there for just under two years and I planned their annual conference, which brought together 600 uh, coaches all the way from sort of the community level uh, up to Olympic uh, athlete level. So that was really inspiring for, for two years. It was incredible to be around those individuals and the high performing athletes. Um, and then uh, I took the job that I have currently now uh, in 2016 in September. Uh, so I was hired by the Canadian Association of General Surgeons. And uh, my current role here is the uh, conference manager. So I currently oversee the Canadian Surgery Forum, which you both are familiar with. And uh, it's the largest surgical meeting in Canada, which brings together a thousand delegates uh, every year. It's really uh, amazing all the different things that you've really worked in, and I and I guess it shouldn't be that surprising, you know. It it it, it clearly reflects in the way that you you do your work and in terms of the the expertise that you bring to the to the um, CAGs and to CSF. So, what has made you sort of really commit to the the medical community and uh, and has has allowed us to to retain you in, in this field mm -hmm. when you clearly could have done so many other different uh, things and, and have done so many other different things like what where does that passion for the medical mm -hmm. community come from mm -hmm. yeah um that's that's actually a great question and i um i actually thought that an event is an event is an event um and i didn't i thought i could just sort of plan every event and plan it well and have that passion for it and uh, i noticed when i moved into the sports uh arena and i was planning their conference i didn't have the same passion um that i had uh for medicine when i was planning uh medical conferences um, at AFMC. So that was a learning lesson for me. And that sort of brought me back to the medical world um, where I am now. I think my passion, I've, I've been asked this before, so I've actually had an opportunity to reflect on it because um, it, it was hard for me to put into words because it's so innate. You know, my, my passion for doing this is so innate. It was hard to describe. But when I really had to sit down and think about it because I kept being asked this, I, I, I think I, I got lucky in the sense that this role is perfect because it's a perfect marriage between two things that I that I know very well and I'm familiar with. So a lot of this sort of pulls on my um, my education and my training in in sociology and, you know, just the, the, the concept of gathering groups of individuals. And we've been doing this for, you know, for for centuries and, and how it uh, contributes to the fabric of our society and, and our growth as human beings and the you know the effects that it can 
have on our health mentally and physically when we're not together. Um, so I understand it sort of from an academic, you know, standpoint, but um, I think personally, it's something that I, I, I thrive in and I enjoy so much because I am an individual that is naturally drawn to other people. Um, I think you guys both know me well enough to confirm that I'm, I'm an extrovert through and through. I feed off the energy of other people and I really enjoy the magic that happens when you bring groups of people together, whether it be, you know, socially speaking or at an academic level, you know, uh, which is what I, what I do prof uh, professionally. Um, related to that, um, I'd say um, one of the one of the best books I've ever read, and and that really speaks to me about that is uh, the art of gathering, why we meet, and how it and uh, why it matters, and it's by Priya Parker. And I would recommend it as a read to, to anybody because you don't have to be doing that professionally speaking to sort of um, understand the importance of it. And she really gets down to the nitty gritty um, about the, the importance of human beings coming together and those lasting connections and making those meaningful uh, connections wherever you are. So whether it be at work or whether it be a dinner party with your friends. Um, why I'm drawn to medicine, that's an easy, uh, I think that's an easy question now because I've always said to, to people, if I ever start, you know, planning things that don't make a difference or aren't impactful, um, you know, shake me, you know, slap me in the face because I've, I, I think my, um, if I can be a small part of the process of changing, you know, changing the world or changing the way somebody thinks or, you know, uh, changing an individual for the better that that can contribute to society in a positive way. That's an incredible uh, privilege for me. And, and, and it's an honor to be a part of that process. So medicine, you know, as well as a lot of the other, um, you know, sciences, hard sciences is, is at the top of the list for me. So if I can be a part of that, whether we change the healthcare system or just even better a patient outcome, if I was a small part of that in some way, because I, I, I created the modality to bring you guys together to learn how to do that. Um, that's incredibly humbling and, uh, makes me, I can sleep well at night knowing I was a small part of that. For any, anyone who's seen you running around at, uh, CSF, you, you're probably not a small part of those, those conferences for sure. Um, and I want to, we will get back to that sort of that whole concept of meaningful connection. Cause I think that's very, um, important material topic for how things are going to change and maybe how virtual conferences or hybrid conferences are going to achieve that. Uh, but but let me uh, ask you, as someone who has worked in conferences and event planning on many different fronts, like, can you give us a sense of how big this industry really is? Um, we, I think, we have a bit of a skewed perspective in that we see medical conferences, but how how really big how big is the event planning world? Like, what is the scope uh, of what we're talking about? Thank you for asking that question, first of all, um, because uh, I, I uh, those that know me, if there's any listeners from the event world or my world that 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 are listening to this episode right now, um, one of our biggest pet peeves is we're constantly talking to each other about our importance. Um, and we're preaching to the choir. What we need to do is we need to educate the layperson about how big our industry is and and uh, uh, the impact that we have on the economy and local communities when we're there. Um, so, uh, meetings mean business is, uh, sort of the advocacy arm of, of my industry. And I've done some work with them, uh, when they've asked me to, and, uh, there's a phenomenal, um, video, maybe I'll send it to you guys after and you can post it in the show notes, but 
there's uh, they, they have some great advocacy videos out there that really succinctly summarize our, our, our importance. And uh, I think the last, like the statistics that I have in my head, I remember, I think they're from 2017. So I apologize if there's anything more recent, but um, we're enormous where I mean, I'm going to speak to Canadian stats, because that's obviously my area of expertise. So just with our country alone, our industry, so the business events community generates $33 billion um, through through our spending related to just conferences and, and business events. Um, in relation to jobs, like direct jobs for our industry, it's 229000 And when you're looking at uh, Canada's GDP as a whole, you're looking at $19.3 billion that we contribute to, to our country's GDP. Now, if you look at that um, globally, uh, because we do have a day that's dedicated to our industry as a globe coming together, it happens every April, um, we actually have an impact of $1.5 trillion on the global GDP. So that's trillion with, that's T. So if you break that down and, and you make our industry, the business events community, a, a country, globally speaking, we would be the 13th largest economy. Um, so that makes us bigger than Australia and Spain and Saudi Arabia. And, you know, sometimes we have to sort of dumb it down, you know, or chunk it out like that to, to have the layperson actually understand uh, our importance. And um, uh, there's been a lot of research that's been done uh, and, and we're getting the word out there. But uh, I know a lot of people just sort of come and go to conferences sort of as they please or weddings or music festivals, whatever. And uh, they don't really actually realize how how important we are to the communities, uh, financially speaking, uh, especially for job creation and, and, and whatnot. And COVID has definitely um, highlighted our importance uh, in a way that uh, we, we wish it hadn't. But but I'm glad people are starting to understand now. You know, Karen, that's a that's a perfect segue. You know, the, the footprint that you've described economically, socially, personally is is unmatched by almost anything else. I think that crosses disciplines, and it's it's fascinating to hear that. As you also point out, the last calendar year or 2020, you know, has impacted everything in our lives, I, I think probably forever. Can you tell us and the listeners, give us a sense of how COVID-19 has impacted your industry in general, and then maybe break that into the, the medical conference world. And it, maybe in particular, if you're willing, how it's impacted CAGS and the CSF specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, this year, yeah, this year has been tough. I, I don't think there's, there's a better word to sort of describe what's happened to us than uh, catastrophic. Um, we, our industry was hit, uh, the first, uh, when COVID came, we were hit the hardest and, and we're going to unfortunately be the last one to return. Uh, so personally speaking, I mean, it's been hard for me because I've watched, you know, an industry that I've invested so much time, uh, and energy in, um, that I thought was so powerful, you know, just based on the statistics that I told you, I mean, we were equivalent to some, you know, world economies. Um, and I watched the same industry shatter like glass in, in seven days. Um, so uh, experiencing our, our fragility, if you will, has been a very sobering experience for me. 
um, we're working as hard as we can, you know, to sort of um, get help, uh, get get government officials, get funding to support us. Um, but uh, I am I am concerned for sure about our industry, and I'm concerned about how it's going to affect events face to face when we do come back. Um, because there, there's going to be a lot of talent that's going to be lost. People have already gone ahead and found jobs outside the industry because, I mean, you can't go without a job uh, for eight months, even if you are on CERP. I'm worried about hotels and uh, conference centers that uh, may not open again, or if they do open, they're going to be sort of at half staff. Um, so I am concerned when face-to-face -face events return, how we're going to be uh, able to keep up with that demand if there is sort of a, a resurgence um, or revenge attendance, as, as people are calling it. Um, uh, so in regards to um, how it's impacted uh, medical conferences, um, uh, it's it's the good news is it it hasn't I don't want to say it hasn't affected medical conferences, but I would say COVID uh, and the lack of face to face interaction and moving sort of virtually has affected medical conferences a bit less than it has some of the other uh, industries, more specifically creative industries um, like my own. So. For example, um, medicine, as you guys know, is very didactic. It's very, um, you guys are used to talking heads. You guys are used to lecture formats. Um, you're, you're not necessarily used to doing that online for eight hours, but you are used to that format. Now, 2020, the virtual conferences that you've attended have, have done exactly that. I mean, they haven't necessarily been great, but the information um, and the research has been disseminated, you know, period. Um, it's lacking in a lot, you know, that I'm sure we'll get into later uh, in this episode, but it, you know, it's lacking in networking and audience engagement and all that. And medical conferences, that's a huge part of, uh, of medical conferences as well. Um, it's number one reason why people go to conferences. So um, in, the, in that sense, we're still able to sort of push out education and, pu and push out research the way that we did before. It's just done at a very crude and rudimentary level at, the, at this point. Um, the one thing I think, uh, and I, I, you know, I'm trying to sort of be positive about this, but the, the one thing that I have sort of seen with, you know, this pivot to virtual for medical conferences specifically, which I... I'm I, I'm proud about and I'd like to be a part of that in the future is um, the democratization of the access to science. Um, there's been a lot of medical conferences that have been offered virtually this year uh, that it has had a very lower price point than if you could attend in person or maybe they've even offered it for free. Um, and that's been sort of a, a change, I feel, for the science or the medical world uh, specifically. I, I feel um, that, you know, we've, we've locked down information and we've kept it to ourselves, um, very much so. And, um, I mean, uh, conference content by, by its, you know, very nature is, um, ephemeral. So by making it sort of virtual and allowing access to, to it, to everybody at a lower price point or no price point at all, having it available long after the live event virtually happens, I think is actually going to be a great thing for medicine. Um, and uh, and it could make it could make a difference um, on on, st on clinical trials on research. Uh, the more people that have access to this information and research and, and can be involved, so um, CAGS and, and CSF, um, we've definitely been affected by uh, COVID. Um, we canceled the Canadian Surgery Forum in April, and there was no appetite to move to virtual this September when we were supposed to execute our, our execute our conference in Vancouver. 
So um, thankfully, I mean, that's allowed me some time to definitely learn how to do it properly if we have to do that again in 2021. But uh, from an academic and education standpoint, CAGS has continued to push out information for our members because we are well aware of the enormous loss that the CSF uh, brings to our members. And we may not be able to to provide that networking opportunity for you that the CSF does, um, especially with industry partnerships and your colleagues, but we can still continue to push out information for you related to COVID uh, or, or not. So we've been offering one to two webinars a month um, since April. And I think we're gonna continue to do that long after uh, we have a vaccine. You know, I, I love that you talked about access to to information, and, and I guess in this context, um, CME type um, mm -hmm. le lectures or webinars or, or talks, and you know, as as you know, that was one of our goals and passions with Trauma Conference International that we ran for three years. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find that at www.traumacon.org, and you know, world class lectures, and we tried to use um, a bit of a, a different financial model, which was to to charge. Um, individuals more commonly centers in North America, a small fee, and then use that to pay for translation fees and the tech to then distribute all of that mm -hmm. content over two days through Central and South America. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll tell you, by the third year, we had close to 10,000 folks online real-time watching it. And you would get these testimonials from groups all through Central and South America where they were in tears because, as you point out, they were so happy to have access to content that historically they'd never be able to fly up to, you know, New York or Miami or wherever else. And I, I agree with you entirely. Like, I, I think that's the future. So how do conference um, um, traditional, uh, you know, groups like KEGS, for example, how could do you think they can deliver that content? Maybe that's more uh, potentially more available to folks beyond their their paying membership in Canada, for example. So um, the way that I mean, we haven't talked about it uh, as of yet, but you're absolutely right. There are groups out there that you know have have already done it, and I commend you and your team, you know, for for doing that because I am aware of that conference, and I know that has always been part of the mandate um, of TraumaCon. You know, was was to make the information more accessible and make the conference more inclusive. And I think COVID has just accelerated a lot of conferences to do that. I think it was the wake up call that that we needed. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think we need to be more inclusive uh, with education, especially when it comes to the academic sciences that, you know, um, uh, whether it be engineering or whether it be medicine, uh, that's important. So I think CAGS's future, um, you know, or the CSF, you know, the future is going to be uh, that of a, I mean, I'm hoping that of a hybrid model. And I'm hoping that that is, that is going to sort of, you know, start the, the concept that I think a lot of planners and a lot of conferences, you know, uh, academic or not, are going to start to embrace. And we've got to start recognizing that, um, you know, education should not, I mean, 
we all know that pandemics highlight the social uh, inequalities of our society, and, and it definitely does so academically speaking and for conferences as well. There's no reason why we should be holding this information so tightly to our chest um, and not make it available to those that uh, otherwise cannot come to our conference, whether it be limitations because of childcare, limitations because of uh, transit, uh, uh, you know, transportation, uh, whether it be limitations for cost, um, we need to find a way to uh, make it available to um, everybody that should have access to this. And it's not just those that are going to be receiving the information that's going to be better off for it. I know um, we're going to be better off for it as well. Anyone that's involved in the in the research that's being uh, presented, um, the concepts that are being put out there. Uh, I know you've spoken about this on your podcast, and I strongly believe it as well. Um, you know, the more diverse groups of people that are included in discussions, um, especially, you know, in research and science, um, you know, the, the better we're going to be and the faster we're going to come to, to results and, and uh, solid results. Um, so I, I think that's, uh, that's our future. Yeah, I, I think we both agree with you entirely. It's, that's beautifully stated. You, you know, over the past few months, Amir and myself, and I think a lot of us have attended some, some, uh, some interesting virtual conferences, surgical and, and medical in general. Some of them have been really tremendous experiences, others far less so. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering what, what you in particular, and most importantly, but also that your industry, um, what you think of these changes and, and where do you see some of the more innovative solutions and things that might be coming down the pipeline in the future? Yeah. Um, I'm with you. I've definitely sat on a on some fantastic ones, and I've sat on some some terrible ones as well. Um, <clears throat> I have, I guess, uh, I want to. I, I guess I want to clarify something, which I think could bring some um, so, some some happiness or some positivity, um, you know, to to your listeners that may have to sit on virtual conferences for another year. The conferences that we attended, virtually speaking, in 2020. Uh, they were planned. The conferences that we're going to be attending in 2021, virtually speaking, are going to be designed. So there's a huge difference between those two words in the sense that when COVID hit and when it hit in March, the conferences that were already planned for the 2020 year or the conferences that were already scheduled to happen were planned to be face to face. So that's that's how they were designed. Um, and it's all they've known. So when they pivoted to virtual, you know, with, I mean, I don't blame them. It's not their fault. They didn't know what they were doing. Right. None of us have been educated to put together a conference of our size virtually with all the components that you're supposed to be able to get face to face. So um, they were drinking from a fire hose as quickly as they could. They couldn't turn to anybody for assistance because no one has been through this before. Um, and the AV platforms that are there, yes, I mean, there are hybrid, you know, conferences that have been going on for, you know, for, for years, hybrid isn't new, but the demands that we are placing on these AV companies and these virtual platforms that we need, it's unprecedented. And they, they simply weren't ready for the demand when we came at them. And we also didn't know what we wanted. So 2021 is going to see, um, conferences being planned virtually, well, not planned, designed right from the get-go for um, a virtual audience. So it's going to be more, uh, the content is going to be curated specifically for virtual audience needs, including the length of time. The networking is going to be specifically, you know, for your virtual needs. 
um, it's going to be different. It's going to be um, it's going to be better. Um, so I, I hope that brings, you know, people some hope. It, it's the technology has been advancing. Uh, I mean, we've advanced in virtual platform technology more in, you know, these eight months than we have in the last eight years. And it's just going to keep getting better come 2021. So some of the things, I mean, in general, the things that I've seen thus far, the best sort of virtual events that I've been a part of have been very mindful in their design and, and aware that sort of everybody is virtual. So they, they tend to be very, uh, very much inclusive and very, um, they want to involve their audience as much as possible. The ones that have done a very good job have also had a, a heavy lean towards a production um, feel. So, uh, you know, think about, um, you know, if you're watching TSN, you know, and you've got an anchor desk and you've got, you know, James Duffy, like he's the, the thread, you know, that sort of brings all the panelists together. And uh, that kind of stuff I'm starting to see now. And I truly believe that if you're going to be planning an event, a virtual event, it's got to be done from a, uh, from a production level. You've got to start thinking like a TV producer and not just trying to take your, your face-to-face conference and and make it virtual. So I've seen anchor desks, I've seen uh, uh, sound stages where keynote speakers are actually, you know, on, on a sound stage at an AV um, uh, office in one of the major Canadian uh, uh, cities. Um, I've seen, uh, I was a part of one conference where the um, speaker actually put up two topics. So he, uh, he or she were, was well-versed in both of them. And uh, the audience got to choose live what topic they wanted. And whatever topic won uh, was the one that the speaker went uh, full steam ahead with in the moment. Um, so that was pretty cool. A little bit of an unconference design there. I've seen an empty chair format. Um, so uh, the last panel of the day, there's somebody from the virtual audience that's actually brought on board to be a part of the panel based on a, a, a phenomenal question that they answer. So involving the virtual audience that way. Um, there's a lot. Um, and I mean, what's coming is going to be even more exciting if you're talking about holograms and you're talking about augmented reality, which I've also been a part of, uh, which has been very exciting. And, and I think it's definitely the future. Uh, I want to um, get your thoughts about what you think a hybrid meeting will look like. Uh, let's say, mm -hmm. you know, assuming that um, we, we go back to normal sometime in the, uh, in the near future. Do you, do you think there's going to be a, a hybrid type format where there's some people live and some people virtual? And have you seen any good examples of where that uh, potentially has uh, has been done? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I guess as a disclaimer to for my own, you know, credibility is I don't have a crystal ball. I can't necessarily predict what conferences are going to look like. But um, based on industry reports that have been coming out from, you know, from my industry, um, I think we're looking at statistics like 80 to 90 percent of planners are uh, committing, uh, you know, to a hybrid format for their conferences for the future. So I, I think it is safe to say that, you know, hybrid is the future, um, uh, you know, whether we want it or not. Um, and for, the, for those listeners that don't understand sort of what a hybrid model is, uh, just very quickly, it's it's basically one event and you've got two audiences, right? So you've got an audience that is there live on site at the event and you've got another one that's attending virtually um, uh, from, from anywhere, probably from all over the world. So the statistics that are coming out of my industry, I, I can give um, some numbers here um, That's that's been based on some research that's been done. So 
hybrid is going to return in 2020 or return, I should say hybrid, we're, we're going to experience hybrid for the first time in 2021. And they're expecting that to happen around Q2, Q3. Now, again, I'm speaking for Canada only. I can't speak to the other countries. Some are full steam ahead. Some are completely still shut down. But in Canada, we're going to start to see the first hybrid events emerge in Q2 and Q3 of uh, 2021. Now, these are going to look weird, for lack of a better term. It's going to be um, very different than the conferences that you're used to if you feel comfortable enough attending these in person. So these hybrid, um, I mean, this is all based on, you know, the, the news with the vaccine. Um, you know, the population will not be vac vaccinated by Q1, Q3, uh, sorry, Q2, Q3 of 2021. So all COVID measures will still be in place at these events, should you choose to go to them. So it's going to be a very small number of people who are face to face, and the large part of, of the participants will be online. So you're going to see, um, you're going to see everything from, oh my God, uh, contract tracing with your badges, long queues, uh, socially distanced set up rooms. So everyone's going to be six feet apart. You're going to have limits in all of your uh, all of the ballrooms. Uh, there's going to be no food that's uh, served buffet style. If you're served at all, it'll be plated. There's going to be no networking. Um, there's going to be masks everywhere. If rapid COVID tests have been developed, you're going to be uh, those will be on site. Your temperature may be taken before you go into the room. Um, there may be immunity passports that you may have to show if the vaccine has um, already started rolling out. Um, uh, or you may have to show a ne negative COVID test in the last 24 hours. It's going to be weird. It's going to be different. Um, so that's what we're going to see first. And we're going to see it happening on smaller levels. So you're going to see it happening first regionally. And then you're probably going to see it more like, you know, provincially, like in sections, like maybe, you know, the Western area or the Western chapters may meet, you know, for example. And then you're going to see it rolled out nationally. And I mean, based on studies that, again, have been coming out from my industry, the major reason why people don't want to gather face to face right now is because it, it's a major concern for their safety. And even if they feel like they are being careful and cautious, they can't trust the person next to them in the ballroom. So that's the reason why people um, are, are afraid to gather. Now, if you limit the, the points of transmission or where they could sort of contract the virus, then there's even more likelihood that they're going to gather. So that's why nationally or even, you know, provincially speaking, those events will come back last um, because you're obviously going to need, you know, to head to an airport and you're going to need to get on a plane and all those expose you uh, and your risk is heightened. But if there's, you know, for example, if, you know, one of the events that I'm a part of, you know, here in Ottawa, if we have an Ottawa chapter and we're gathering, I'm comfortable, you know, going there if COVID measures are in place, I will take that risk, you know. So that's how you're going to see events come back. The way that we um, recognize events and conferences, and you know, the CSF specifically, um, that's not coming back until at the earliest, according to reports, Q3 2022. So that'll be when we're back sort of to normal, quote unquote, without any, without any uh, COVID measures uh, in place. So um, I, I, again, you know, I, I spoke about it earlier, but there definitely are some, you know, some some positives with the hybrid model, and it's one that I definitely want to adopt, and I do hope, you know, uh, leadership at CAGS and leadership at the CSF do uh, do embrace that. Um, but there's a lot of pros, and and I, it took me a while to embrace it. I'll be honest with you, um, it took me a while, but I, I'm on board and I'm excited. Um, 
when you uh, eliminate sort of, you know, the uh, need for uh, time and, and space, you, your options are really limitless. So when we're not confined to a ballroom that 60 people can fit into, um, or you're not you know, you're confined to like three days where you have to shove all the information into three days because people flew here uh, and they have to get home, uh, you, you have a lot of options to offer a lot of education in different ways for different periods of time. Um, so I'm excited with what hybrid can sort of bring us. Um, and we are continually evolving and working on how we can incorporate those elements of face-to-face -face events that we do so well virtually, because we know that's where we're lacking right now. We are aware of that and we're working on it. And I don't know if it can ever be replicated, but it's coming. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to ask you about next, because, you know, frankly, it sounds like kind of a frigid experience to 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 envision a conference in in 2021 where you're sitting six feet apart you can't get mm -hmm. congregate you can't sit and eat lunch with someone like it, it almost seems like well why why would i go in person uh, mm -hmm. unless i was there or I, I really wanted to meet a certain person like you, you almost have to um you know ask yourself 10 times why would i go to a conference in person if if i'm not going to have that opportunity to network and, and i think that's something that you've yeah. always talked about so um you know you mentioned a few things where we can where conferences are trying to involve um members of the audience but uh, do you see any other ways that uh conferences are going to be able to get that networking because that really is the only thing i think that that mm -hmm. you can deliver over a couple of days like it's the networking mm -hmm. part of it that that really um, is is missing from a lot of people's lives in, and conferences. So, any thoughts about how people are going to address that uh, down the road? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, great question. And I know that that's one that we're struggling with uh, right now. And I mean, I echo all your comments for sure. I mean, when I go to conferences for my industry, um, that's the reason why I'm going there first and foremost is you know connect with everybody sort of you know nationally at this at this one event. Um, and th that's the main reason why people go to the CSF. To be quite frank, it's the main reason why why people go to conferences in general. Um, I think the I think the number is something like seventy five to eighty percent of people um, are there to network first and foremost, and education is secondary. Um, so uh, I'm not going to sit here, uh, you know, and, and, and tell you that, you know, we're going to be able to replicate it or it's been replicated the same way that you will get it uh, face to face. It's not. Um, they're, they're doing the best that they can, but it's not the same. And I'm just as disappointed uh, as you. And we're working as hard as we can to sort of, you know, um, close that gap. Um, I, I think I think they're again, though, I'm trying to sort of be positive. And uh, I think there there's some there's some positives that we can look at in regards to the networking that has been available for the virtual conferences that I've either been a part of or that I've read about. And one thing that, you know, conferences don't do very well is we don't design um, we don't design our conferences for introverts. And um, I mean, conferences are essentially, you know, hundreds of people or thousands of people, you know, in one area and you throw them all in a ballroom and, you, you know, and you say, you know, have fun and you, you put a mic at the back of the room, you know, and oh, you have a question, you, you know, ask your question in the mic with 700 people staring at you to an introvert. That's that's pretty intimidating. Right. And the social network, the social networking is the exact same way. You walk into a room and you've got 500 people looking at you and you've got to go up to a group of people you don't know. And introduce yourself. So 
The one thing that I actually have seen that I'm proud to say is I've seen a lot of targeted networking happening at these virtual events. And, and I don't, it definitely is going to be great for introverts, but I mean, to be quite honest, I think it could be beneficial for the extroverts as well, or anybody that just really wants to connect with somebody uh, that's like-minded or share similar research topics or whatever the case may be, because our time is precious and it's very limited right now. Um, So if you can guarantee me that I can connect, you know, with somebody that I'm going to have positive, um, you know, positive outcomes with, like we're going to share research, we're going to have uh, commonalities, you know, in, in our working environment, and I can better myself and my job because of, of this connection, that's absolutely worth it. And you don't necessarily get that face to face because you're sort of running into whoever you're running into, or you sit next to somebody for lunch, and you don't actually know who they are. So what I've seen, what I've seen with some conferences is, uh, you know, you've, uh, you're in a you're in an area, everybody has profile pics or avatars, if you will. So you can physically see them and where they're seated or where they're hanging out, just like in in real life. So that's great. But what they've also added is for networking um, opportunities, uh, some tables are, are, uh, they have topics posted above the table. So you actually know what's going on in that room or what's going on at that table, what they're actually discussing, what's uh, what's important to them at that time. I've also seen... um, you can hover over that individual who's at that table and, you know, uh, their bio will pop up um, uh, or a little bit about their profile. So you can actually see where they are, you know, what their interests are. In my case, what kind of conferences do they work on? I'd rather connect with medical planners than non-medical planners. In your guys's case, you may be particularly interested in the research areas that they're interested in. Um, so that's what I'm talking about in regards to sort of strategic networking, because at least, you know, if you plop your avatar down at that table, it's probably going to be a pretty productive discussion that you guys are going to have because that topic, you know, already what you're talking about. And you know that the person that you sat yourself right beside, um, is actually interested in the same topics that you are. Um, there was another scientific conference that I actually read about that, um, they matched people, um, they used an algorithm, I think it was a mathematical conference, and they used an algorithm on the back end to to match individuals or, or delegates solely on three abstracts that they submitted that were like representative of the research or um, the research area that they're most passionate about. So they submitted three in advance and the algorithm was actually able to um, find them six uh, colleagues or six other participants at this conference that they can connect with for 15 minute uh, conversations. And that too was set up in the uh, um, in the virtual environment, like the, the the matchmaking and the scheduling assistant that was actually also available via the conference. Um, so there, I mean, I, I mean, socially speaking, like that sort of targeted networking, if you really want specific outcomes, um, if you just want that networking sort of feel, I mean, I was just on, I was just at an award show virtually, uh, this Wednesday, I want to say, I think. Um, and, uh, it was great. We, um, uh, they had a live feed coming from a separate URL Uh, We all had our profile pics at tables and we all were able to move tables whenever we wanted. And we were all able to, again, see in advance who was at that table. Uh, There was no bios or or profiles that came up, but uh, we still had the opportunity to see where our colleagues were. And what was really cool about this this app is um, you could actually hear the conversation at the table next to you. So exactly as if you were in a ballroom. 
So you could actually hear if it was some, if they were talking about something that you were maybe interested in, you could sort of mosey over there. And um, when the actual awards presentation happened, like I said, it was in a different URL. So you opened up that browser, but you actually stayed with the people at your table. So all of us were sitting together, you know, for lack of a better term, sitting together at the table, watching the awards presentation like we would have if we were there in in real life. So we were able to clap together and do our virtual cheers together and, and that kind of thing. But what I found really interesting about it was there was almost this expectation that people were, um, th- that you're not supposed to stay at the table that you're at you're absolutely supposed to pop in and out. So people would sort of give an update about what they're doing. And then they would just say, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to walk over here. I'm going to go visit other people at another table. I'll see you guys soon. No one was offended. You know, nobody thought that was rude. Nobody also thought it was rude if somebody popped into your table for two seconds, saw who was there and decided they didn't want to stay and left. So there was no judgment. There was no expectations. There was, um, it was really, or it was different because that doesn't happen in person. I feel very stuck with sort of who I'm sitting with at my table, you know? So I think that may, uh, that may change in the virtual world. There's that expectation that you should meet as many people as you want. That's so interesting. And it's so exciting. You know, your, your initial descriptor off the, off the top of, of COVID-19 and so much that's come with it as catastrophic is certainly accurate, but you know, there's also some really neat things that are happening in your world, in the clinical world, in, in our world in general. And, and that's really exciting to hear about. Karen, one, one of the things that's been very interesting and enlightening for me personally, you know, being lucky enough to sit on many committees and execs on a whole bunch of different scientific um, and, and surgical organizations is the financial side. And by that, I mean, if you had honestly asked me, even two, two years ago, if some of these societies would have been financially decimated by not having their individual conference annual meeting uh, within a year or two, I, I would have sort of thought that would have been impossible. But that's certainly the case for many societies and not the case for others. So I, I was curious in general, outside of you know the industry and the job creation side of it, what your impression of, of, of this COVID-19 uh, impact on the financials of, you know, medical and surgical uh, organizations and, and the conference uh, side of things from a revenue generation uh, standpoint uh, would be? Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. Um, this has been a real sort of awakening for a lot of associations, a lot of medical associations. Um, generally speaking, the your annual event, an association's annual conference, annual general meeting, uh, congress, whatever you want to call it, is usually the second highest generating um, uh, revenue line item uh, in the association's budget. It usually falls right after membership. So if you, um, before COVID hit, if you're an association that hasn't really diversified your revenue sources and you rely solely on membership and the conference, um, you're in trouble. And, and, and 2020 has been a real eye-opening year for you um, as a result. Um, hopefully, there, you know, it won't be catastrophic in the sense that, you know, the entire chapter or association dissolves. I don't think any of them sort of rely on it, uh, you know, that much. Uh, but it's definitely taught us to um, expand, you know, um, uh, the revenue sources. Um, 
I think um, it's also the different sort of, you know, um, modalities that we're now using to sort of offer, you know, education uh, has also shown us different ways to generate revenue outside of the conference. It's also strengthened, at least, you know, uh, I can speak for CAGS and the CSF, some industry partnerships that we otherwise wouldn't have had um, throughout the year. And that's the problem with conferences is you focus on three days or a week or however long your conference actually is. That's that's the only time that you're presenting this education, that you're interacting with people, um, you know, that, that, that you're providing those networking opportunities when really it should actually be all year. And I think COVID has sort of, you know, forced a lot of associations, whether they want to or not, to pivot to that, that new business model to actually provide those networking opportunities to provide that education um, throughout the year, not only for your members, but also from a, from a financial uh, standpoint as well. And um, I think, you know, I'll, I'll give, uh, I'll give sort of like a, like a word of, of caution, you know, to, to people attending uh, you know, conferences or working on program committees or at, at executive levels. If you're returning to a conference after COVID that hasn't, you know, innovated or hasn't changed or the association, you know, business model as a whole hasn't changed, hasn't learned, you know, uh, from the lessons that COVID, you know, ha has taught us, it may, you know, you may want to invest your dollars elsewhere. You may want to find an association that, you know, you know, can adapt to change can learn from mistakes, can grow, can be better, can be stronger. Um, and I would, I, would, I would say that for sponsors as well, you know, if any sponsors are listening. Um, if you return to a conference, you know, or an association that's still doing the same thing after, uh, you know, COVID is done, um, they're probably not a partner you want to work with uh, long term because they're probably not really strategic or creative uh, or, or innovative. So you need to use crises like this to to, to grow and to change. And we definitely have and will continue to do so. You know, we've talked a lot about the uncertainty surrounding all of this. Um, what do you think is the most challenging thing about preparing and uh, predicting the future of this work uh, in, in the current context? Uh, you know, this, um, I get, I know this is sort of like a cop-out answer, but Honestly, the most challenging thing, you know, th that I'm facing right now that I have been facing, um, you know, since COVID hit uh, is, is just so many unknowns. And I think the thing that's most difficult, you know, for, for me, I can, I can speak for myself, but a lot of other individuals uh, who, are, who are in positions like, like myself, we're the same person. We are, you know, a group of individuals that by their very nature, they plan everything. Um, you know, we're, we're trained to anticipate things in advance. We're very risk adverse by nature because there's so many moving parts and there's so many people dependent on us. Uh, and, and we're control freaks. We need to have control all the time. So uh, 2020 has left us, um, you know, feeling very alone, uh, very sort of untethered. Um, I mean, I've been drinking as as my other planner friends uh, been drinking from a fire hose uh, with with regards to the information that that's been out there. I have been, um, you know, reading articles and on webinars uh, more in the last eight months than than I have in my entire life. Um, so and things are changing as well, you know, like week by week. Um, 
What's promising, I am talking about a lot of unknowns, but what is promising is the news, you know, of the vaccine, and hopefully it will be uh, positive in a rollout and we can meet, uh, you know, face to face soon. So at the very least, at least my industry has sort of a targeted date, you know, to return or at least a light at the end of the tunnel. When this first happened, there was talk about years of maybe never, you know, never meeting. So um, I, I, there's a lot of, you know, questions that are that are also being thrown around my industry as well just saying you know um you know what if this bubble is just going to burst this virtual bubble like what if what if it's only existing because right now because people are home and they're in front of their computers and they're quarantining and they can't go anywhere you know is there still going to be that same demand for education you know and and conferences sort of on a virtual uh, scale uh once that's all lifted and and once we can sort of you know run free again um and and I spoke to this earlier, too, and this is a concern, you know, like, uh, as mentioned, our industry, you know, has been decimated and we've lost a lot of, um, you know, talent, the new grads that have been trained, um, you know, with the, the specific skill set to, to, you know, plan and develop and execute massive, massive gatherings. They haven't been working, you know, for the last year or two. Right. So, you know, um, they're losing all the education that they learn because they can't sort of, you know, act on it right away. So if we're losing key you know, senior players in the industry because they, they have to find, you know, work elsewhere. And we've got years of, uh, you know, we've got newcomers coming in who, act who actually haven't been um, working. Is there going to be a service gap, you know, when people return to events? When people return to face-to-face -face events, as I mentioned earlier, are we, you know, are we going to have the hotels that are going to be there? Are the convention centers going to be there? Is the staff going to be there? Um, I, and I mean, like, just, just the, uh, the, the, the speed at, um, which technology is developing, it's almost impossible to, uh, to keep up. And the last time that I checked, there was 94 virtual platforms, um, that were available. Um, so to offer a, a virtual conference, I mean, a planner can't go through that amount of platforms to see which one fits best for the needs, you know, uh, of their audience and of their association. So um, that's sort of the challenges that I'm faced with right now is, you know, my program committee members, my steering committee members, my delegates are looking to me for answers. They're looking to me for timelines. They're looking to me for solutions. And I should be in a position of, of um, you know, a power and experience whereby I can, you know, tell them this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to do. This is how things are going to get better. And that's normally what I do, you know, uh, in a non-pandemic situation. I can reassure them um, because I'm confident, you know, um, but it's the unknowns for somebody that plans and needs complete control. That's been my biggest challenge. People are looking to me for answers and I can't give them any solid answers right now. And it's definitely frustrating uh, from a from a personal level. What are what are some of the things that you see for CAG specifically and CSF, um, you know, in the next year or two in terms of uh, where we're going to go with conferences and maybe beyond as, as an organization, um, if you had to summarize, um, and uh, do you think the future is still bright for, for conferences? I, I absolutely do. Um, I think uh, I, I've heard this word thrown around a lot, and I 100% believe in it. Um, I think we're going through a renaissance right now. 
And um, I think we're, we're going to only see the products that are going to come out of this are going to be even better, um, you know, than, than we could have imagined before. Um, like I mentioned before, this was something that had to happen. It's just COVID sort of accelerated, um, you know, our, our awareness that another business model, is, you know, is is needed. So, I mean, I personally am I'm excited about the future. As mentioned, it took me a while to get there. I was definitely grieving the loss of the CSF. I was, you know, grieving the loss of, of my industry as a whole and everyone that was, you know, out of work and continues to be out of work. That's hard. You know, it, it's hard to push through professionally when you're getting a call every week from a colleague that has lost their job and, uh, you know, they have a mortgage to pay and they have mouths to feed. Um, you know, and they're asking you to write a recommendation on LinkedIn for them, you know, uh, so it's been difficult to focus sort of in, in you know, um, it was at the time back then. But the we, we now have a lot more education that's out there. We have virtual events that have already happened. Um, so we have lessons learned from there. We have hybrid events that are actually currently taking place. Not like America should be a model for us right now in, in regards to face-to-face -face, you know, events and the safety around it. But there are a lot of conferences that are gathering in the States and they're doing the hybrid model. Um, I was a part of one in Texas where there were 700 people on site there. And I think there was like 2,000 of us online. So it's happening. And as these events continue to happen and continue to progress, we are getting stronger with the information that we garner from, you know, their failures or their successes. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think that's the future of the, the CSF and CAGS as well, is I think we learned that uh, this CAGS needs to offer, you know, more benefits to their members just aside from the CSF. The CSF has always been rated as the number one member asset uh, to, uh, to CAGS uh, members. That's come across in our membership survey. We know that. But is it because that's the biggest and best thing we offer? Maybe we could offer other things. And I think that's sort of, you know, what this pandemic has, has taught us. We've been very blessed that our members have not left us during this pandemic with the absence of the CSF. Our numbers really haven't dipped that much. Um, so we've been lucky. Other associations, maybe not so much. So it's the wake up call sort of that we all needed, that we can't just put all our eggs in one basket and have one annual event and have our members be satisfied with that. So, um, I'm personally excited for the future. I know education is going to be a huge arm for CAGS. That's going to, can, we're going to continue to have a, a wider, broader reach. Um, I'm, I, I honestly envision uh, satellite courses that we're going to offer across Canada. Um, it could be a hub and spoke model, you know, where one hospital is sort of teaching and, you know, we disseminate that information, you know, uh, nationally, um, you know, to, to satellites uh, listening. The webinars will continue to roll out. They'll probably be higher level uh, education and engagement as well. Um, and I definitely want to see, uh, again, as I mentioned, more access to, to science, um, to sort of, you know, um, to better uh, our association and better the surgical community and, and Canada as a whole. And um, one guy that I actually found on Twitter, and I'll plug him right now, his name is Mike Morrison. And uh, he's, he's absolutely fantastic. And he posts so much information about how to actually uh, make your scientific posters more impactful. And uh, that's exactly what people need to know right now with the virtual platforms that we're using. Um, so he's got some great tips and some great YouTube videos. And I think that would be great for our members to learn so that information can have a, a wider reach. So I'm excited. The future is, is uh, bright.
You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.